Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm going to quote one of my favorite Chinese apparatchik, Hu Ying. She described the, uh, the U.S.-led world order as an old suit that doesn't fit anymore. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College, with support from policyforum.net. In this episode, the NSC's Chris Farnham is joined by three eminent experts to talk about China and how it views its place in the world. His guests are Nadej Holong, Senior Fellow for Political and Security Affairs at the National Bureau of Asian Research, Jude Blanchett, Freeman Chair in China Studies at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies, and Charles Edel, the inaugural Australia Chair and Senior Advisor at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. G'day Jude, Charles and Nadej, welcome to the National Security Podcast. Jude, I might start with you to really lay a foundation of how we should understand decision-making and thinking within China's leadership. So I'm going to throw the first question at you. How do you think the Chinese Communist Party sees China in an international context? And what role do you think the party wants China to play on the global stage? Uh, Thanks, Chris. It's a really good, hard question. I appreciate you giving that to me first. Um, in an honest sense, I don't know in, in the sense that what we have to be able to assess this is statements of intention by the leadership and matching that against our own analytical assessments of what China's international behavior means. So I think there's a, on almost all of the questions I suspect we discussed today, there's actually a really interesting, robust debate in the community about What does China want? How expansive are its aspirations? How far out does China's development interests extend? Um, Is China revisionist power? Is China looking to replace the US? These are all really interesting, challenging questions. But to try to make a a relatively non-controversial assessment just so that we can move forward, um, we've had a, a nice, clear articulation of the international order and China's assessment of it just the other day in the uh, much uh, awaited history resolution that was passed as a part of the the sixth plenum. And you see that the party has a a bit of a mixed diagnosis on the international order. On the one hand, they see this as Xi Jinping likes to say grim and complex. Um, I think they sense that the international space for China is becoming more restrictive, more complicated. There's more scrutiny for China, both in terms of its diplomatic military, but increasingly its commercial space. But on the other hand, I think 
uh, the Xi administration in Beijing sees a, a moment of opportunity here to take advantage of a shift to what they call a multipolarity. Um, we can debate whether or not that's the right assessment from Beijing, that this is multipolarity, but nonetheless, they're signaling that we're in this liminal transitory phase of the global order and that if China can, I think, actively assert its interests, um, it will be able to shape the global architecture that will really be running the global order for the rest of the 21st century. Um, so uh, in terms of what role China wants to play on the global stage, all I can say with uh, certainty is a large one. Um, <laughs> that is that is clear from how Xi Jinping as a leader thinks about China. We've seen this, um, and again, both Charlie and Nadezh have written extensively about this, but we've seen this in the highest level assessments that come from the Communist Party. These would be in the quinquentennial party congress documents where Xi Jinping says by the middle of the century, um, you know, we want to be one of the dominant powers in terms of uh, comprehensive national power. Um, we want to have a world-class military. This is not a small aspiration. I'll just end it with a kind of more of a question. And for me, a, an area to think through is I think one of the really interesting debates occurring now is um, what's really animating this global push on China. You have one side of the community which says, look, this is primarily defensive. Beijing is really focused on what does it need to do internationally to protect its domestic political system. Um, you see that as economies grow, it often pulls powers out into the world to be able to secure access to energy resources. And then there's another side of the debate which sees something much more intentional and revisionist in Beijing's aspirations. This is about um, supplanting a global order which it wasn't there to build that it essentially had to watch as the United States and other powers erected this um, global architecture, which China wasn't in China's interest, and it has had to navigate around. And, and now that it has sufficient power, it wants to have a, a seat at the table and writing the rules of the road moving forward. So I probably didn't actually give much of an analytical assessment, but that to me is kind of the, the basic terrain here. Yeah, I'm I'm certainly going to get Nadej to drill down on how China sees its place in the world order, but I might just stick with some of the points that you've raised in your response there. First off, whilst understanding how opaque Chinese policy deliberations are to the view of outsiders, is China's foreign policy and the nation's place in the world a strongly contested issue within the party? Is that something that we can see from the outside? I don't know and no, but let me take a stab at an answer. And I say I don't know in the sense that um, oftentimes I think we reach conclusions about how robust or not a debate is based on what we can see. Um, and it's undoubted to me that there is probably more of a informal debate within the party, especially around some of the areas of Chinese international and global behavior, which have galvanized pushback. Um, so undoubtedly, when people are looking at the response to Xi Jinping dropping the hide and bide strategium, which had been operationalized since 1992, um, I think we get the sense that there's some frustration that this has come too soon and it was predictable that the reaction was going to be global pushback. In a sense, I don't think that matters, though, because um, he has such a lockdown on the system and has um, reshuffled all of the personnel at the, at the senior most levels. Everyone who is in a position to enforce and implement policy is either directly under Xi Jinping's wing or scared enough about the consequences of going against him that fundamentally 
And this is something I think we should worry about. The, the, the once very robust debate that you could see spill over into the pages of strategic journals and academic discourse at Tsinghua and Beida, I, I don't see that anymore. And I see various shades of red. So, Charles, I, I might actually draw you out on, on a point that this raises as well. Does having these kinds of debates about the way China is going to interact in the world hidden from the view from the rest of the world, does that force us into having to prepare for a worst case scenario, given that we can't gauge uh, where China's going in advance or even have some kind of input into the discussions? How does that force us to consider our own strategies and statecraft? Well, look, let me um, hit that question really quickly, because I think we're actually on a really interesting uh, thread here about methodologically, how do you read China? How do we understand what's happening, particularly when it's so opaque right now? And let me just say that I have so little to contribute to this conversation because most all of my readings of what is happening are based on the expert work by those who can do Chinese language work, which means Nadej and Jude's work really stands out. That's not just blowing smoke their way, but I think methodologically, there's really something to be said for getting into the documents, understanding where the disagreements were, and look no further than the other two experts who we have here. Your question, though, is not so much about China and how to read China, but about how it is that we respond, particularly when they have something of an opaque system. And what I would say uh, on that is the fact that we don't have a great read on what is happening, uh, the fact that in addition to there being less transparency, we know from kind of open source media that Uh, U.S. intelligence sources, to a certain degree, have dried up uh, and been cut off forcefully over the last five to 10 years. Uh, But that does not, you know, absolve leadership, political leadership of making decisions about how it is that they're going to proceed with a plan of action. Uh, So I I would just say two things for this. Uh, One is, regardless of the state of the debate in China that we are able to read, there should be prudent planning for more than one scenarios and eventualities, right? That's just what governments do. And I think worst case and best case and in-betweenest case all have a role here. That's why we do futures planning. Uh, The second point, though, that I would make is how you weight those different outcomes and therefore which one you judge most likely, you can have an opinion on. And I, in fact, imagine that political leaders do have an opinion on. And I would simply point to the fact on this, that uh, as Jude said at the very beginning of his comments, it's some combination of looking at what they say combined with interpreting what you see they are doing around the world. And because of that, I would simply say, take their words, uh, if not at face value, seriously. And it seems uh, maybe not worst case scenario, but we are not dealing with a benign government coming out of Beijing that is waiting, as Jude said, to, to, you know, um, in the Dung uh, formulation, uh, bide its time and hide its strength. We're seeing, in fact, the inverse of that, which suggests that there are different sort of actions that governments who want to push back against that ought to be taking right now. So we're going to come back to a little bit more on how we should understand China, but I'd like to dig a little bit more into how China sees itself and its place in the world. Nadez, do you think that the party's view of itself and its place in the world has changed much since it came to power in 1949? Not really. I think um, 
I think when Mao uh, proclaimed the uh, the foundation of the PRC in 1949, he um, he said that you know the the, the people had stood up, uh, the country had stood up. Now his successor made China rich, and then uh, Xi Jinping now says that China is becoming strong and and is going to have this central role to play globally. But perhaps what has changed more than the objective, which is again this, uh, uh, you know, erasing the century of humiliation, going back to a sort of uh, a standing on the international stage, uh, a recognition of, of China as a as a as a big great power. More than the objective, it's the ways to get there that have changed. So obviously Mao wanted to get there through a world revolution. He wanted China to become the leader of world revolution. And that's why he had this competition against uh, Moscow, because they both wanted the same thing. Uh, then uh, Deng Xiaoping wanted to bide his time, perhaps. But what he wanted was basically building China's comprehensive national power, build the basis for its material power in all domains, starting with the economy to make sure that it would achieve uh, something. Uh, and, it, you know, you cannot hide and bide forever. You will hide and bide, but then something else would, would happen. And and this is the the return to, uh, to this central place, I think, uh, that probably the, the Chinese political elites uh, think um, is legitimate and it's the rightful uh, place for, for their country. Um, Xi Jinping said the same thing when he, you know, he said, said about the China dream of the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, which also uh, resonates uh, very well with, I would say, pre-communist China ideas, you know, about uh, how do you rejuvenate the nation. So in other words, you can achieve this return uh, to preponderance uh, using different ways, but the objective is somehow uh, the same. I might just add, I guess, a, a slight sort of variation on Nadezhda's great analysis is um, when I look back functionally sort of year to year throughout, um, you know, the, the Mao, the Deng, uh, Jianghu and, and Xi period, I, I agree. I think you see many kind of lodestar consistencies in terms of how they're articulating um, uh, reclaiming lost glory um, uh, about China's rightful role as you know in in the international order, but um, I also think I also see a lot of tactical differences year to year that that are pretty striking and fundamental. And and part of this to me is just the twisting path to modernization that China has traveled o- over seventy years that have seen it take these twists and turns domestically. And I also think. Really, the big fundamental difference I see now that I think is substantively different, it doesn't clash with Nadezhda's assessment at all. I think she'd agree, but it's really a a change in behavior that corresponds with um, an accumulation of power and resources. And so that to me is the real distinction now that's that's critical is, you know, remember uh, Yang Jiechir 10 years ago before he was a household name now had that comment where he said to a Singaporean official, there are big countries and there are small countries and you need to know the difference that I think really pretended, or at least said the quiet part out loud 
about how a increasingly strong China would act. And in some ways, I should say, I don't think it's surprising at all. Or, and it's many ways, um, I can understand the justification for it. The United States holds a very similar position about what it's the weight it has and, and its right to throw that around. I think what's jarring for us is it's a very long time since we've seen a power claim that same right at the same time. And the fact that it comes with a different ideological, political, economic system makes this quite a, a jarring experience for us. But anyway, I, I just wanted to, to me, it's really that question of now that they have the wealth and power, how are they going to act? Wealth and power is always an aspiration. I mean, they've, they've got it now. In their own assessment, I think this this assessment of power, material power, uh, really is the the time when you start to see a shift in the the uh, the rethinking of the strategic vision. Uh, so it's around 2008 with the global financial crisis, 2010 when they you know uh, overtake Japan at the second as a second world economy. So this assessment of their relative power in comparison with with the U.S. that sets the course and the direction in a different different way. Just to you know, to put this in totally unuseful and wholly academic terms, uh, this is you know, this is actually a question of grand strategy that we're talking. Uh, I, I mean, what I'm hearing from everyone is right that objectives have not changed, strategies and tactics have evolved, and one of the more interesting questions becomes. Um, when do you shift strategies to accomplish what may or may not have been the objective all along? And uh, Nadezhda's point, which I take very much, is it's based on a calculation of power, uh, both external circumstances, how are the international forces correlated against you, and also what does your domestic situation look like? Uh, and so I think the challenge here, going back to the original point that Jude said, is because their system is so opaque, uh, not only for many Westerners to penetrate also, but because it is purposefully made opaque, it is very hard to make the judgment call of when it is they have decided to shift strategies. Because when they have shifted, it will necessarily occasion a different type of policies and responses to that shift. So Nadeja, I want to hit on something that, that you've written in the past. I wanted to hit on your thinking when you wrote that China's vision of the world is where Tianxia meets Leninism. That's a really enticing thought, and I'd love for you to unpack that a little bit for the audience. It's, um, it's, it, to me, it was very difficult to encapsulate uh, what it means exactly, what, what is you know, the nature of, of this vision. You know, when you, you think about, okay, how do you describe the U.S. vision for the world? You know, you might come with something like, oh, it's liberal democracy, right? So it's very short and sweet and, you know, you, you kind of see where, where would that go. Um, I think for, for Beijing, uh, first of all, this vision is not necessarily fully articulated. I think it's, a, it's a something that is in, in, uh, in progress and not completely um, articulated up to the detail of it. Uh, but what was striking to me when I was trying to figure it out for myself was the layers of it. And um, even though the, 
the system is very opaque. It's true. There, there are still some, we still have a little bit of window or like looking through the keyhole of, um, of, uh, writings and, and, um, interviews with uh, Chinese scholars who are, you know, the intellectuals that surround the political elites and have those discussions to support this strategic thinking for, for the leadership. And so looking at, at what they're writing, what, what struck me was that they were looking uh, into models of international relations or articulation of international orders that went back to China's own history. Uh, and but it's not very surprising, right? You, 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 you had a, a model that worked very well for yourself uh, decades or, or, or centuries ago. You may want to go and see if you can pick some of the good ideas from then and try to perhaps apply them on, on the, in a 21st century context. Um, so um, basically, Leninism meets Tianxia or Tianxia mean, meets Leninism. It's, it's all under heaven, all under the party, all, on, all under the party's command. So Leninism has been decoupled from Marxism. Uh, as I as I said earlier, it's it's not uh, Beijing doesn't want to wage world revolution anymore. Doesn't want to, the, the the other countries to become communist. Um, um, but that Leninism part is present in in at the tactical level in the ways that uh, the party deals with others uh, in its ideas, perhaps of uh, you know. Per, Perpetual war. There's no difference between peacetime and wartime in in these ideas of uh, propaganda uh, to shape the perception of others, and in its united front tactics. So this is these are elements that are very prominent in the way Beijing conducts its its diplomacy. The Tianxia part. Um, so we we could have a whole you know hour debate of, about whether the tributary system ever even existed in East Asia. This is a debate for historians. Um, even though some of of us might be more skeptical about the fact that it it ever existed, there are elements of uh, an articulation again of the structure of international relations throughout history in East Asia, where China was. Uh, an empire, a dominant power with vassal states around it that made for a very hierarchical uh, structure in East Asia. And you, you, in, the, in, the, in the way that um, those Chinese scholars describe what a Sinocentric international order might look like, you can feel this hierarchy, and and Jude mentioned it again. You know, even through the the words of a, of a foreign minister, you know, China is a big country. Others are a small country, and that's a fact. You need to accept that we're the biggest power around. Um, so it's 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 this idea of a of a so subordination of others to China's interests and and preferences. Um, but it's it's a it's different from. Um, let's say other versions of imperialism. So it's not like they want actual control over territories necessarily, uh, and it's not necessarily either a full um, a repetition of what 
the tributary system was supposed to be. You know, people are not going to uh, offer uh, uh, rows of silk to Xi Jinping in, in the next decades. But the creation of these inter- interdependencies that make it more difficult for subordinate states to get out of the of the dependencies of the uh, to get out of the um, of the hierarchical system. I think that that's that's a big part of it. So that's a long. <laughs> That's a long digression on something that was meant to be a, a very short encapsulation of, of what this world order might look like. Oh, I, I thought it was a great encapsulation. And I'm I'm going to bring Charlie and Jude in in a second, but I just wanted to stick with you for a moment, Nadej. How does the Chinese leadership and its strategic community generally regard the current US-led world order? So I'm going to quote one of my favorite Chinese apparatchik, um, not just because she shares the same hairstyle as myself, but because I think she articulates very well in English things that sometimes we have a hard time understanding from the outside. And this is Fu Ying. Um, she wrote a, a piece uh, several years ago, I think in a, in an international uh, media outlet, I can't remember uh, exactly where, but she described the uh, the U.S.-led world order as an old suit that doesn't fit anymore. So basically, something that um, uh, is obsolete. Um, and the the official narrative or rhetoric usually uses two terms um, to describe uh, the, the the current world order. They call it unfair and unreasonable or unfair and unjust. It depends on, on uh, the translation you want to use. Um, unfair, what it means re- really, it's because they think that the current order doesn't leave enough space for, for China and emerging countries uh, and, and perpetuates the domination of Western powers, uh, the U.S. in particular. And unreasonable because... Um, the, the critique here is that they think that uh, the the world order as it stands doesn't bring solutions um, that are viable for the world. So basically, what you need to understand uh, that's very implicit in this in this term unreasonable is that liberal democracies haven't um, um, completed their uh, supposed task of bringing prosperity and stability to the world. And so uh, instead of having um, a liberal world order, we might want to find something else, an alternative, um, an alternative to it. And that's where uh, the China solution comes may come in. I'm... Going to be moving to Charles and a brilliant article that he co-authored recently that talks about how China is looking to shape the world. But first, I'm going to go to Jude. And given that you've had a lot of discussions with the strategic community within China over the years, and you're able to read and tap into the Chinese language sources, do you feel that it's a commonly believed among the Chinese leadership and the strategic community that China was able to free ride within the US-led world order, which provided it the space to get rich? Or is there a completely different view in China that sees things differently? That's a really good question. I think in in, in official assessment, no, of course not, right? That would be a sacrilegious 
assessment or conclusion that essentially it was the United States which facilitated China's rise. And in, indeed, you know, any document that summarizes China's experience over the past several decades, and thankfully, we just had the official summing up here uh, that was just released the other day, it is, of course, the hard-won actions of the Communist Party lifting uh, the Chinese people out, out of poverty. Um, now, that being said, I think clearly, if you were to talk to sophisticated international relations scholars, they undoubtedly understand that there are elements of the international order that the United States facilitated that allowed China's space to to grow. And indeed, the linchpin of this would be the, the, relation, the economic relationship with the United States. There are political sensitivities, as I just mentioned, around even discussing mathematical realities about what interlinkages with the United States did to support China. Um, but I think that assessment is, is undoubtedly understood, which is actually why we're undoubtedly entering into a much more interesting discourse and discussion that is no doubt occurring at academic levels about um, what China's international space looks like moving forward now that it can no longer free ride in many of the ways that it could. And this, of course, puts China in a position of needing to bear burdens that it previously has not needed to bear. I would say as a really interesting example is, is Afghanistan, where the official rhetoric from Beijing after the U.S. withdrawal was glee and delight. Quietly, though, it was well understood that this opened up a whole new um, level of instability at precisely the border area where China does not want instability and unpredictability. So I, I think an interesting space for us to watch moving forward is how are folks at the strategic level assessing what powers China's rise moving forward now that, A, domestically, the low-hanging fruit of productivity gains have been consumed, and at the international level, again, returning to the assessment of grim and complex, China will need to create or wants to create architecture, um, but at the same time, it will have to, to, to bear burdens that it hasn't had to. So I think there's probably quietly a sh some schadenfreude in looking at the United States and, and the perception of an atrophying global position. But on the other hand, I bet there are new questions and uncertainties and worries that when Xi Jinping, you know, in, in the middle of the night when he's contemplating, you know, going to the bathroom or trying to wait it out till morning, he's undoubtedly also thinking about this um, increasingly, I think, uh, uncertain environment. They won't say it, and that's up for us to be able to assess it. Um, but I think that's, that, that's going to be the real challenge for Beijing moving forward. We'll be right back after this short break. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. 
In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So I'm going to throw the next question to you, Charlie, on understanding Chinese strategy, but I'm going to be keen to hear Nadezhda's response as well. Does China approach the issue of strategy in a similar way that we might in a Western tradition? Can we understand Chinese thinking through our own prisms? So, look, the, the, the short answer is yes and no. Do they uh, approach a strategy the same way that Westerners do? Yes. There's a set of objectives. Uh, they have strategies that are thought out and then resources uh, and tactics are put at those strategies to see whether or not they can indeed overcome the challenges in order to meet their objectives. Uh, I think that's what we've discussed already. Um no, or at least maybe differently than many Westerners think this, in the sense that uh, traditionally, at least, um, there's a certain strain in Western, certainly American thinking about going right at a problem. Uh, I should say probably in Australian thinking, too, because as we all know, Aussies are well known for being blunt and hitting it right on the nose. That is, you see a problem, you say directly what the problem is, and you come right at it. There's another uh, way that, again, is not wholly uh, a Chinese way of looking at things, uh, but it's certainly uh, one that uh, Mao wrote about frequently uh, that the CCP has put in his documents that is not a straightforward policy, but a roundabout or an indirect route. So that is, you know your objective, but you work to create the conditions that set the most conducive and the most favorable conditions likely to make sure that you can produce the outcomes that you want. That, that's a long-winded way to say that I, I don't think there's a huge difference, but the difference in approach and style might be quite substantively different. Nadej, I'm keen to get your thoughts on that question, but also if there are any challenges for those of us who wish to understand what China wants in the world and how it intends to achieve those goals. Yeah, I think you know when, when we're thinking about uh, ways that, that China strategizes. Um, I, I don't want to mystify China too much for, for the same reasons as, as, as Charles uh, just mentioned. But you know, just like different cultures may have different ways to approach you know, uh, interpersonal um, disputes, um, I think there, there might be also slight differences in the way a, a country or a specific country approaches um, a strategy. Um, it, it doesn't, you know, like I'm French, it doesn't mean that necessarily whenever I think strategy, I am infused by Napoleonic ideas necessarily. The same way, you know, any strategist in China doesn't necessarily is infused with Sun Tzu's principles. Okay, so that's one extreme. Um, I think the, 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 the political regime itself and, and the, the, the political framework um, sets some parameters also for, for strategy, like in the Leninist system, like, like China's, I think this lack of distinction between wartime, peacetime, or, or seeing war and peace as a continuum, right, rather than things that are distinct, uh, probably is, is a difference, uh, from, from, is different from, from other, uh, let's say, um, Western, uh, thinking. Um, there are some elements that are also perhaps more inherited from a more traditional uh, 
trad- more of a traditional Chinese culture, if I may say it this way. I, I, it sounds very cliche, and I, I, I want to avoid it, but the attention to you know, the propensity of things, how you know external non-material factors may affect a, a situation, and and I think in in the way um, um, Beijing's intellectual elites are trying to assess this grim and complex environment, this also is quite relevant um, in in the way they approach it. Um, there's a lot of actual you know influence from uh, Western. Uh, strategic thinkers, Mackinder um, in the naval area, um, um, Mahan is, is is a very well read also in China. So there's a there's a mix of influences there that can shape the way um, uh, Beijing uh, thinkers uh, or Chinese thinkers you know put this into a, a, a strategic context and and draw lessons from from it. I just want to make a quick point to build on what Nadej is just saying about the heterodox nature of the influences in China's strategic thinking, because I I totally agree. I I always get very uncomfortable with cultural explanations. And anytime I see a PowerPoint that has Sunzi on the first page, I know I'm going to ignore anything else that that comes out of this. I was actually thinking, um, it, it feels to me that Paul Kennedy has had an important influence on Beijing's strategic thinking um, because, um, you know, I, I was just rereading, uh, um, you know, his, his, his book recently, his book, I say it, it's on the, it's on the book stand there that I can't, uh, rise, rise and fall the great, great powers. powers, rise and fall the great powers. You got it. Um, and, and I was reading it and I was thinking the first sort of chapter of it feels like this is a crib notes for how Beijing thinks about translating economic, there you go. Charlie's holding up a, a well-worn dog-eared copy. Um, of how critical it is to, tr- to to build aggregate economic power to translate into strategic and military power. Um, and it's also interesting that you notice starting in the 1990s, Beijing began to develop these sets of metrics around comprehensive national power to make quantifiable a metric by which it could assess its own position relative to other powers. Um, and there's, you know, there's not one metric of comprehensive national power. There's a whole different, you know, variety of these um, and I don't see it discussed as much, maybe because it's just been internalized or they realized that the foreign barbarians were, were, were reading about this. Um, but I think I just think to Nadezhda's point, it's so interesting how assimilationist the Communist Party has been and how open to um, other strategic cultures and sources and how it thinks about it. But fundamentally, these are hardcore materialists who even with all the, and again, Charlie has written some really good stuff recently about the role of ideological competition. But when I think at base, how Beijing nowadays thinks about global influence, it's a really cynical view about hard power, you know, as being the the, the, the be all and end all sort of foundation of which, you know, you get various ideological branches, but but this is a, a, a quite a, a realist, you know, materialist uh, a leadership when it thinks about the global order and what it needs to do to strengthen its own position such that it can wield influence. There's not much mystical or orientalist about it, I think. What, what's interesting to me is how much they observe what the U.S. has been doing uh, to be where it is now or what others are doing. And so and trying to like tick all the boxes, you know, there's this question of um, 
okay, material power is important if you want to become a great power, right? You want to have, uh, yes, economic power. You want to have military power, tick, tick. And then uh, what is it that the, that the U.S. has? Oh, that thing called soft power. What, what, can we have it too? Because it looks cool. But um, what, is, what does it take for us to have something like that? And so it's transformed now into this new thing that's discourse power, discursive power. How is it that we can you know, implant some of our concepts to shape uh, the, the thinking of others and, 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 the, and the way uh, the world goes? So it's, it's interesting that it's like um, there's this permanent assessment of their own where they where they stand their own calculation of it but also what what is the 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 actual hegemon doing or has what is it that they have done to be where they are now and can we can we take a page from this Uh, i'm going to jump in right there too because actually i think part of what we're seeing already and part of what's been in many ways, confusing, right? Uh, for any of us, be it in Australia, be it in the US, be it elsewhere, about, uh, you know, a lot of people are asking, why did US, why did Australian foreign policy, national security orientation change so rapidly? And part of what I think we're talking about is uh, there's, this is not just China, this is not just the United States or just Australia, there's an interaction happening here. So part of what uh, Nadej is talking about, about, you know, uh, the Chinese wanting to go after certain things, be it soft power, if it's called discourse power, that can add to their aggregate, even if non-tangible elements of power. We also see very precise strategies from Beijing to respond to particular things that the United States has been able to do, right? I mean, the entirety of their military strategy in East Asia is predicated on stopping the United States from being able to do what it had done in the past, that is, project power flow forces into the area. So, you know, after watching the United States transit not one but two aircraft carriers during the Taiwan Straits crisis of 95-96, all of Chinese military strategy oriented around what became known as A2AD, right, anti-axis area denial, uh, making it much harder for the United States and others to put forces into play, making a harder bubble. Uh, you know, similarly, now when people ask what the heck is happening, you know, why does it feel like whiplash, be it in Australia or the U.S.? Uh, I mean, my take on this is generally the Chinese have moved out so fast across so many fronts that the United States is simply playing catch up in a lot of these areas. So it does look, and indeed it is a reorientation of American strategic posture, but it's also really a reaction to changes that it has seen coming out of Beijing. That, that, that's a great discussion, and it provides a really good segue into the article that you wrote recently, Charles, with David Schulman. Uh, you published it in Foreign Affairs. And it's an article that I hope becomes a touchstone for thinking about some of the fundamental attributes of the current era of great power competition. It's titled How China Exports Authoritarianism, Beijing's Money and Technology is Fueling Oppression Worldwide. We'll put a link for this in the show notes, and I encourage all of our listeners to give it a read. But right now, I'd like to draw you out on some of the central arguments of that piece. 
You you talk about in the article how China's leadership is not looking to export an ideology, but it is looking to undermine democracy worldwide. Let's work backwards on that and first ask, what is the end goal for China in undermining democracy? Is this in aim of China's national interest or is this a party interest? Yes, uh, to both. Uh, or, uh, I, I, you know, it's all under heaven and it's all in the names of the preservation of the party. Uh, so those two are indistinguishable to each other, uh, is, is my interpretation, which obviously flows from my reading of Nadezh's work here. Uh, and you'll actually see that her work is cited throughout. Uh, actually, you won't see because it's foreign affairs, so there are no footnotes. But Nadej, uh, your work uh, kind of drove how Dave and I saw much of this, certainly how I see it. Uh, and so what is the goal? Well, the goal is not simply to do what the Soviet Union did. That's like a fun and stale debate, which I have participated in many, many times. Um China today is not uh, the Soviet Union of the Cold War, right? It's not trying to violently overthrow regimes around the world. It's not exporting uh, its ideology in the way that the Soviets were. But that does not mean, nor should that blind us from the fact that there is an intense ideological competition that's taking place precisely because in an effort to ensure and build up the safety of the party and of the People's Republic of China, not only are they exporting elements of their authoritarian system to others who want to receive it because it looks attractive, uh, you know, and in a benign view, maybe because liberal democracy hasn't delivered in some areas, um, but also because in doing that, the tactics that they are using are working to also enervate and hollow out a lot of democratic institutions, ideals, and norms around the world. So, you know, at the very beginning of this conversation, uh, Jude posted this as a question for himself. It's one that I think about all the time, right? Um, is what China do, is what China is doing motivated by, uh, you know, a sense of defensive mechanisms, right? That they're worried that the world is turning against them. So they have to kind of push out. Or do they feel more powerful so they're kind of going on the offensive? Uh, it's a really interesting question. I think it will probably never be answered uh, fundamentally. Uh, but in certain regards, in certain regards, it actually doesn't matter what the motivation is if the manifestations of it are an advance of authoritarianism around the world and a hollowing out of democracy and liberal values. Yeah, I just wanted to... Um build on that because one of the things I find so striking is I don't think Beijing, if we were to ask them, are we in an ideological competition? I suspect the way they might reframe it is, or Xi Jinping would is, we're in a competition of systems. And really the new competition for Xi is, and this is this is what makes him so, I, I think we should abolish any comparisons of Xi Jinping to Mao, because I find them so substantively different in really important very vexing and challenging ways. And Xi Jinping is, in the same way Mao is focused on the legitimacy of, uh, of a revolutionary ideology, Xi Jinping is fixated on governance performance as the ultimate fundamental justification and test um, of, the, of China's unique political model. And the great sort of achievement, I think, that he wants is for it to be accepted as superior to the Western political system. And I love this quote from a Xi Jinping 2019 speech that I feel like should be more widely known. But Xi Jinping said at the fourth plenum, 
A well-founded system is the biggest strength a country has, and competition in terms of system is the most essential rivalry between countries. The most essential rivalry between countries is a competition in terms of system. What's interesting about that is the U.S. has been trying to get Beijing to admit we are in a great power competition, and Beijing says we don't use that word competition. Yes, they do. Xi Jinping is very, very clear that he sees a, 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 the, el- the essence of the rivalry as a competition in terms of which system can better perform, right? And so I think ideology is infused in that. But I think if Xi Jinping is sort of really honing in on where, where the sort of where the tip of the spear is for them is our system's going to bury you. I do struggle with equating the national interest with the party interest. I may be a cynical observer, but I can't see how a system that has to tightly control information, crush dissent and manufacture nationalism to survive is in the national interest. And neither do I believe that party members, say from the Politburo and up, believe in their heart of hearts that they place the nation's interests above the party's interests and most often their own personal interests. Chris, can I just make one quick point? I see it. I see it. I actually see a different tension or another tension, the tension between what's good for the party and what's good for Xi Jinping, because in many really fundamental ways, she's unwinding of the Deng era project to put constraints on the personalization of power to put some minimum processes in place to facilitate the succession of orderly succession of leadership um, almost all the manifestations of Xi Jinping's governance philosophy and, and personal style of leadership are in direct contravention to the, the, the diagnosis that Deng made specifically August 18th, 1980 in his great big speech on reform of the party system. So I, I think going forward, we're, there's going to be another subtension, which is um, Xi Jinping, like Stalin, is taking the system and, and jamming it through the round peg through the square hole of his preferred view of governance and of world order. And I think that puts, and maybe this is an area where we're going to see pushback emerge in, in among the party elite is, as imagine out two, three, five, eight years as Xi Jinping pushes harder and harder and harder and harder. And the, and the sort of pushback globally grows and grows. And some of the kind of tensions within the system begin to build up and build up and build up. Um, that to me is, is another interesting area uh, to watch. Uh, I, I want to um, uh, jump in uh, to actually put on my historian's cap to totally disagree with everything you've just said, Jude. Uh, no, I, I just, in terms of kind of internal dynamics of the party uh, and uh, how many rivals Xi Jinping has versus how many he has buried, literally, literally and metaphorically, I defer to both of you. Uh, but I would say from a historical uh, comparative perspective, um, I don't think pushback is likely to happen until there is a major Chinese stumble. Uh, That is, uh, you know, my read on the situation is she has done such a good job boulderizing any dissent within the party, any dissent within the Chinese nation, potentially any dissent worldwide, uh, that the daggers might be there, but they are not drawn and they've been lopped off people's hands. The question becomes, if and when, when and if China stumbles, how quickly those will come out and whether or not they can coalesce to actually take them on. Yeah. And by the way, just to clarify, I wasn't and didn't say that there's a coup. 
and and I think it's really important that we have a more nuanced spectrum than um, tensions in the party being one of a binary of tanks going down Chang'an Avenue or not. Pushback in the party and tension in the party is happening now, and it is fundamentally affecting governance performance at the subnational level because you have whole array of cadres responding to the incentive structure that Xi Jinping is trying to force on them through actions which then Beijing diagnoses as being against what the party's interests are. And so you have another round of discipline inspection campaigns. We're already seeing this process. What I'm saying is, um, imagine how this this continues to evolve and, and push and stress and weigh down because effective governance, if it is the essence of what Xi Jinping is trying to bring to China to solve all the many and proliferating challenges it, it has, the more pressure he jams on the system and the more he tries to take it in a different direction, his own personal direction than where the bulk of the party wants to go, that builds up a tension, as I was saying, not a, not a sort of, uh, you know, Ceausescu on the, on the podium, you know, on, on Christmas 1989. So I think um, it's more to me about thinking of possible future trajectories of China's governance system and how Xi Jinping can uh, uh, um, push, push the system such that there are sort of additional pathologies that emerge which act as their own sort of structural headwinds. I was wondering, listening to to Jude now, whether actually the the years that preceded Xi Jinping were not another way to offer that governance performance that you're describing, and that every attempt before has not necessarily failed, but has shown its own limits also because of the, you know, the parameters of the party that doesn't want to uh, let go of some form of control. So, and whether basically what, what Xi Jinping is doing, I don't know if it's his version of what the national or the party interests are or should be versus what the party wants. Or whether it is him at the head of the party, given this op- being given this opportunity to f- maybe mm-hmm. implement a new way of doing things within the constraints given to him by the party state and how it functions and what its own limits are. So I don't know. I have no answer to that. It's just that I'm, you know, over the course of the past 40 years, it seems to me like there's been a set of experimentations mm. that the party state has tried to play with in order to achieve this objective of effect, efficient efficiency or, or efficient governance. And, and that it seems like all the options have not been really great because, okay, you want to open up the country, you want to open up economically, but it creates a new set of problems. Therefore, how do you address those problems? Mm. How do you, uh, you know, and and perhaps what Xi Jinping is doing is trying to cope with the multiple problems that have accumulated, again, within the constraints that the party system leaves him with. Can I make um, a, a, a really random comparison that uh, I wonder? I wonder if it's useful in thinking about this too, because uh, uh, look, historical comparisons work and don't work. Uh, they, they have utility in forcing us to think a little bit harder. So uh, you know, I take the point that both of you have um, brought up about the fact that 
some of the things that Xi Jinping is doing are creating tensions within the system that might be ineffectual for the governing of China, no less of their strategy. Uh, I would take this in a slightly different direction because, uh, you know, Nadej, you were talking about how important realistic assessments of China's own power come into play when they are designing their strategy. And uh, the analogy that I'm thinking of is if anyone is uh, on this podcast have ever read uh, Simon Sebag Montefiore's uh, Solon and the Court of the Red Czar, uh, which is a fabulous book uh, and basically makes the argument that the Soviet system, whatever it could do, became so sclerotic because Stalin would take you out to drink all night long. Uh, he wouldn't drink himself. There would be 10 of you. And when you woke up in the morning, there would only be eight because Beria had shot two of them. Uh, and the point here is not to make that comparison to China today, but just on the fact that realistic assessments of power and of the efficacy of certain programs cannot necessarily filter up when you've created such a climate of fear and distrust, which means that Xi Jinping might have a grand plan. It might even be the right one, but there is potentially no feedback mechanism and no feedback loop right now informing China where it's pushing too hard, where it's creating friction, and where it's stuffing up the entire system. I think it's a great point, Charlie, and one where when I think about the, the, the next 10 years or so, I think the really interesting space is going to be watching how Xi Jinping's increasingly clear vision for China meets reality and how strategic trade-offs emerge that Xi Jinping hasn't thought about and how he and the system respond to it. You know, the very, the Mike Tyson, everybody's got a plan until they get punched in, in, in the face. And I feel like there's a, a phrase here about Xi Jinping being in power, but not in control. Right. And that there's a limit, you know, as as Dung said in his famous 1980 speech, there's a limit to the time and tension and, and omniscience of any one leader, which is why we need to distribute these powers uh, 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 across a wider array. So I think that is going to be the, you know, the interesting space um, uh, moving forward. What strikes me as being really different from some of these other historical analogies where what happens domestically in China matters in ways that, frankly, it didn't matter 40 years ago necessarily is how interlinked China is with the global or economic you know, order to where as we, this is one where we're not going to be able to watch this experiment go on the sidelines because we all have a stake in where China's governance system goes over the next 10 years. That's what I find both intellectually you know, thrilling about this new era that Xi Jinping has created and also quite terrifying because for the first time, I think since the, the Mao period, the question of where is China going is to me open. Um, the possibilities are expanding in terms of where its governance system, where its leadership system can go, um, how it sees, you know, how it's going to respond and, and interact with the global order. The one narrow point, Charlie, I was going to make, and I could be wrong on this. I'm, I'm almost certainly wrong, but I'll make it anyway. Um, in the history resolution, there was a very interesting line where the normal stock phrase of when it comes to peaceful reunification with Taiwan, time and momentum are on our side was changed to say time and momentum are always on our side. I read that and I thought it's almost as if he hears the discussion in the United States where we're saying she is hell bent on taking Taiwan. And he's almost 
signaling, I'm not in any rush. And what I thought, I don't want to overread this by any stretch of the imagination, because I think the structural pathologies around information flows that you mentioned, I, I feel like are mathematically true, right? Um, but I, I thought that was interesting. Again, I don't want to un- overread it, but it felt to me like one of the first, one of the signs, and there's only been a few where it, it's almost like he is still maybe able to course correct. I think what we should watch for is, is are these fleeting, you know, are these sort of fleeting examples of this as this as the you know oil tanker you know steams towards the coral reef or maybe he still has the capacity to adjust when when the threshold is reached and obviously in the case of Taiwan that's not a minor issue that's an existential issue which maybe provoked the the reaction so looking at the historical analogies and thinking that very close to when this episode will be aired, the Biden administration will be hosting the Summit for Democracy, which aims to develop an agenda for democratic renewal and to tackle threats to democracy through collective action. As we've just discussed, China is very much a pragmatic actor, but there is a lot of talk about defending democracy as an ideological battle. Is there a risk that we're going to slip into old habits and see this as an ideological competition? And what danger does that pose for us creating a, a workable and operational response to the challenge that China poses today? I, I take your point uh, that, you know, look, uh, if we hyperventilate too much, uh, if we get too wrapped around the axle, there is, you know, there are plenty of problems that this could suggest. Um, and I would lay out four in response to your question. Uh, one is right that um, it gives us if we see everything and only through an ideological lens, uh, it means that we are potentially misdiagnosing and misunderstanding the nature of the problem. That is right. I mean, the challenge here is not necessarily the violent overthrow of regimes around the world, but that doesn't make it any less challenging to our interests. Uh, second one, uh, right? If we're only thinking about ideology. It depends what metrics we use uh, to count the, uh, you know, the use of that. So if we're simply trying to count how many Marxist uh, seminars are being taught in Africa or elsewhere, I'd say that's absolutely the wrong metric to judge whether or not they're trying to export elements of their system, right? The question is, are they giving packages of totalitarian control to those who are willing recipients? A third one is there is a danger, right, in saying that you're with us or against us. I think we've learned that in the United States uh, excessively over the last 20 years. Um, I would say that despite uh, what President Biden has said, that he sees this, uh, you know, exclusively framed as the dominating challenge of the 21st century is whether or not democratic systems or authoritarian systems, a competition of systems, it's a very Xi Jinping way to understand this, are going to prevail. But I don't think that should be read. I think it's almost a willful misconstruction to say, therefore, you're either a fully fledged democracy or you're in the bad guys camp. Uh, And we're not going to talk to anyone who doesn't look exactly like us because we're perfect. First of all, we are far from perfect as 200 plus years of experience and certainly the last year and a half's worth of experiences have shown. That is not the point. Uh, We're also not going to say that we are not going to deal with Vietnam's, Singapore's, uh, Philippines, even backsliding democracies, uh, because there's a larger question at stake here. Uh, I I think the point, if I were to interpret uh, 
Joe Biden thought, uh, as opposed to just trying to read the tea leaves of Xi Jinping thought, is simply to make the point, right, that democracies will always have an easier conversation with other democracies. That doesn't preclude working with others, but democracies working with democracies are more likely to align both their interests and their values and therefore be more able to conduct a strategy that is uh, collective in its approach to a common series of challenges. Well, I, I think that that was an excellent perspective and, and I don't see a, any contestation from the rest of our panel here. So let's move on to the final question. And I'd like to ask you all whether there have been any experiences in your professional or p- personal lives, such as a book that you've read, a speech that you've heard, or even some travel that you've done that has shaped the way that you understand or even analyze China. Can I start with you, Jude? I think it was really time on the ground there. And I don't mean that as an exclusionary for folks who who haven't lived a long time in China, but what it really did for me is I can't think about any document, policy, speech, or statement without refracting it through the lens of the actual existing political system that Chris, you and I, you know, when we were, well, we were mostly in bars, but when we weren't, <laughs> we were. that you and I were engaged with there because um, it really forces me to think about Xi Jinping as a, a political actor who puts his pants on one leg at a time and thinking about his role as as governor and leader of China is about corralling a massive bureaucratic system to to do what he wants. It's not that's not the be all and end all. And it doesn't mean, you know, um, uh, it, it doesn't mean that thinking about it purely from a, a bureaucratic lens is the right way. But I, I it's just so infused in my analytical DNA to first ask a question when I see a speech of who's the intended audience? What's the dispute that they're trying to settle? What resources will be demanded of this command from Beijing? How are the lower levels likely to receive and interpret this signal? How are they going to try to avoid or end run the command from Xi Jinping if it works against their own, you know, their own, you know, uh, uh, local interests? And um, I feel like in an era where we're now really shifting to open source and reading the documents and the speeches, which is really critical, I almost feel like there's a little bit too much of all we need to do is read the speech, and then we've got the master blueprint for for what China is. And I feel like the really sweet spot is that combination of intentions as articulated through official documents with a really granular understanding of how do those signals then interact with the actual existing system. Nadesh, do you have any uh, personal or professional experiences that have shaped the way that you understand China? It's difficult to to say anything after Jude. I think it's, it was so eloquent. Uh, I think it's it's sometime there. You know, when I was a student uh, traveling on the train for days in a row, uh, and I don't know if it's shaped the way I see China, but it, it, it's a. I will take the opposite um, um, position as as what you just explained, which is. I try to remind myself that behind or despite those official pronouncements and that you know party jargon and this grand strategic thinking, there are also people living there. And and what we just said earlier about you know nation versus party or people versus party or uh, it, it's very important to keep that in mind um, as you know as a general. Pr- 
rule uh, or principle. I don't know if this adds to our understanding of what Beijing wants and how it does things and how it behaves and why. Um, but I think it's important to to remember. Charles, last word. Yeah, uh, I'm going to give you two, and they're short. Uh, one that's funnier than the other. Uh, so <laughs> when I was in Beijing, when I was teaching uh, at Beida, and I was teaching the history of U.S. foreign policy, great conversations with my students. We had a real good back and forth. And uh, one of my students approached me and said, I want to write my paper on John Quincy Adams. Uh, now, I, my first book was on John Quincy Adams. I loved the guy. No one else did, including his parents and his kids. Uh, and so I said, why do you want to write on John Quincy Adams? He said, well, obviously, because he wrote the Monroe Doctrine. And now it's time for our Monroe Doctrine. Uh, so that was a revealing moment to me. But the other one uh, is a people-based one. And it's uh, sadly a much darker one, I'd say. Uh, look, this story should start out really nicely. That when we were living there, uh, my now wife, my then girlfriend, and I flew out for a lovely weekend uh, out in Kashgar. Uh, and we went, uh, this is in Xinjiang province, uh, if you don't know this, uh, your listeners. And it was a great day, right? Uh, I was literally about to propose to her and she happened to say yes, because we were up at altitude. She was disoriented. Uh, that's the funny part. Uh, the bad part is while we were in Kashgar, uh, and this is about two weeks before the riots broke out uh, in Kashgar, we literally could see the source of that happening because I have pictures of Chinese authorities taking pickaxe to mosque and destroying the old city of Kashgar. And when we were out in the mountains, uh, we were chatting with these terrific teenagers uh, these uh, who wanted to bring us into their village, uh, give us uh, you know, some food, kind of take our money. All that was good. And we watched some Chinese PLA officers come in and push them away, uh, tell us that it was not safe for us to go there and add that there was a great Chinese restaurant down the road for us. And just watching the beginnings of the destruction of a vibrant culture and a people has really stayed in my memory as I think about how the manifestations of China's power plays out, not only on the world scene, but inside of China's borders. Yeah, wow. That's a pretty profound experience, Charles, and I can see why it influences you. Jude, you mentioned all the nights that you and I sat in Beijing bars talking about Chinese policymaking, political theory and so on. And I agree, it was really formative to be living the reality as well as learning about it and discussing it with your peers. But the thing that really grounds me when thinking about great power competition and geopolitics is precisely what Nadez referred to. All the everyday people and normal families I met there who were just looking to live their life and get along as best they could, and also knowing that they had even less influence over the outcome of great power competition than I do. And, and I'm assuming that that's the same as the vast majority of people in Australia, the US, and the world over. And it just serves to remind me that the goal should be security with each other, not security from each other. Nadej Holland, Jude Blanchett, Charles Edel, thanks very much for joining us on the National Security Podcast. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, guys. Thank you, guys. Well, that's it for today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. Don't forget to subscribe to the National Security Podcast wherever you listen. Until next time, thanks for tuning in.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.